This is the movie Hall of Fame Dealer's Choice. Mm. It's the fourth time we've ever done it, and across the table from me, my little pig in the city, it's Adam Hall. Hey, I love it. You're Thelonious. <laughs> That's who you are. I am. <laughs> Thelonious monkey. <laughs> this is the fourth time we've done a Dealer's Choice episode of the pod, where we take three movies from your world, three movies from my world. They don't really fit under any theme, or maybe we've covered the year that they were released and somehow overlooked them. Yes. And so these are just, you know, six movies without a home. Sure, yeah. That we're talking about. And would you say this is one of the more eclectic (laughs) mix of movies we've ever done? I would say yeah. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Because even when, like, okay, so so I am known... For picking like the good taste films, the yeah. good the good movies, sure. on this list, as opposed to you that are known for picking just the you know abandoned in an alleyway behind a dumpster garbage. You pick the stuff that goes down smooth, uh-huh. and I pick the stuff that's generally a little more like cinephile-y. Yeah. Not not for everybody, but like everyone's like, well, you got to talk about that because it's important to talk about that, right? That's right. This time though, I'm like, yeah. I just want to get weird. Mm. I just want to do stuff that some people might think is in that oeuvre. I would disagree. One of them is, but the other two, no. Mm. (laughs) And uh, I just wanted every film that I picked to be completely different from the last. So that's what we did. Yeah. I tried doing a similar thing. I also believe that there are five masterpieces on this list. (laughs) And another really good movie. And this was not intentional. Like, I don't think that we tried to pick thematically coherent movies, but I do think there's kind of a running theme through a couple of these. I think there's going to be overlapping topics that we discuss from movie to movie. Okay. Not necessarily because they come from the same genre or they're similar stylistically or anything like that. I just think like these are chaotic movies for the most part yeah these are uh, movies that for the most part did not make any money in fact like (laughs) some of them are tremendous bombs yeah like got people fired and sent people into (laughs) you know a debt spiral and movies that years later have been reclaimed as masterpieces this is a very strange but awesome list of movies that i think are all good i think we have well one of them is great immaculate yeah that's what that's the word great immaculate great immaculate all-timer the best movie ever made oh don't do this to me we will have fun with that one don't i suffered don't we'll have a plenty fun with that i don't need this out of you today don't worry i don't don't need this i'm not gonna be that negative but i have thoughts (laughs) i have thoughts on you as a human being nico That I rule? Yeah. Sure. That I fucking rip? Sure. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Abby, we got to take him to rehab. <laughs> uh, I'm going to walk right off the set of this podcast and into rehab. <laughs> like fucking Jack Lemon. Abigail's in the room, by the way. Yes, we have an audience Live here. Live studio audience. Hello, uh, babe. Make yourself as inconspicuous as possible. That's all I ask. She's sitting on the floor with her legs crossed like it's a campfire story. That's right. Which is what this is. Uh, yeah. In its own way. <laughs> In its own way. Enjoy. See? 
1962's The Days of Wine and Roses, directed by Blake Edwards, starring Jack Lemmon, Lee Remick, Charles Bickford, and Jack Klugman. Nominated for Best Actor, Actress, Art Direction, and Costume Design at the Academy Awards. Did not win any of those, but it did take home the Oscar for Best Original Song. Same name as the title of the movie, composed by Henry Mancini. Also goes on to win the Grammy for Song of the Year and Record of the Year. Sweet. An American standard in its own right, separate and apart from the movie. Andy Williams recorded a version. Frank Sinatra recorded a version. Maybe fans of Better Call Saul will recognize this song playing in the first episode of season five of Better Call Saul. There we go. Which is named Wine and Roses, as mm. a matter of fact. That Blake Edwards has an eye for iconic songs, like with Moon River. Yeah, this is when Henry Mancini was just like winning the Grammy every year. <laughs> like he got nominated. I think the Pink Panther soundtrack got a album of the year nomination. Maybe it got a win. I'm not sure. But this is when it was like Mancini mania in oh, the 60s. Really? Yeah, Interesting. yeah, yeah. Yeah, he's definitely one of those like iconic guys of the era that you see pop up everywhere. And I've never heard anything by him that I disliked. Because also the thing about the Grammys is like back in the day, just random ass <laughs> albums would win album of the year. I mean, I don't like the Grammys at all now, but... No, but, but see, I wish I was around when like... The Pink Panther was winning album of the year, you know? Oh, yeah, the Peter Gunn theme won the first ever album of the year, the, the Peter Gunn soundtrack. Remember, too, when fucking Oh Brother, Where Art Thou won album of the year? Yeah, that makes no, no sense to me. Breakfast at Tiffany's won for Moon River. Yeah, Mancini. An alcoholic marries a young woman and systematically addicts her to booze so that they can share his quote-unquote passion together. This thing began as not a stage play, not a novel, but a TV episode on the CBS anthology series Playhouse 90, which we discussed when we did uh, Judgment at Nuremberg on the pod. Oh, yeah. Where that movie came out of as well. Uh, it's a movie I watched recently, actually because of Better Call Saul. I was like, what are they referencing here Okay, in that Better Call Saul episode about Jimmy and Kim's codependency? Makes sense. And I was absolutely blown away by this movie. Yeah. I'm absolutely fucking floored beyond belief yeah this is an another one of those tough movies that just gets under adam hall's skin yeah because it was not an enjoyable movie for me at all but it's like fantastic mm. and hard as hell and kind of sneaks up on you especially if you're familiar with jack lemon and you really love everything that he does especially in this era i mean i find it very easy to let my guard down with someone like jack lemon and accept him even when he's being drunk at the beginning of the movie it's like okay he's a bud and then the descent into utter hellish madness that you see especially when they're trying to recover which is just the you know, we are going to talk about a horror movie. I love that movie, but I don't think anything is as horrifying in that movie as just the flower pot scene. Yeah, the in this movie. Holy shit. Yeah. Was it the fourth row, third pot, third row, fourth pot? It's just terrible. And I think I also didn't quite expect it because of my familiarity with Blake Edwards. And right. I think I kind of went into it with certain expectations about like, you know, sort of the punches that breakfast at Tiffany polls and sort of the, yeah. the carefree attitude that the Pink Panther movies have. And I'm like, yeah, whatever. It's going to be kind of tame. And no, it is not. No. No, not even a little bit. This is a tough, hard to handle. This is movie. his best movie by a mile. Yeah. In my oh opinion. God. Yeah. yeah. It's yeah. No, no question whatsoever. It's phenomenal. You put it well when you say that Jack Lemon disarms you, mm -hmm. you know, whenever you see him, it's yeah. like you let your guard down and you're like, oh, it's you, my guy from yeah, the apartment. Exactly. Yeah, you know, we're going to do another odd couple here. <laughs> What's amazing about it, he gets this two years after the apartment, 
that wins Best Picture. I don't think he wins the Oscar for Best Actor, but obviously he's a big part of the reason why that movie is such a big hit. But there's a dramatic edge to that movie, even though it's a Billy Wilder comedy. Mm-hmm. But they let him just go all out in this one. And uh, yeah, when you're, you're watching the first 20 minutes of the movie and he's doing great comedy in the meet cute scene in the elevator where he sticks his tongue out at Lee Remick's character. Oh, yeah. They're actually doing like charming old school traditional Hollywood comedy. You know, that man exists simultaneously with the monster that is infected with this disease. You know, they are one person. It is a wholly coherent performance. And that's why it's so scary. Yeah, it's in a good way tricks you into thinking the movie is going to be something very, very different. And then when it makes that organically slow transition into oh, yeah. these kind of monsters, it is... It's one of those things where you reflect on it and you notice that all the pieces are laid there. And there's a few where the movie actually kind of acknowledges those pieces, like her love for chocolate. It's not, again, yeah. that, that beautiful idea of like, it's just this innocent thing that we all just love chocolate, right? That can be taken and warped into something really, really terrible. Like the worst impulses of the human well, experience. It's, it's so minor too, exactly. right? It's like, <laughs> it's so even innocent. when he yeah. convinces her to have the drink. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And now when you look back on that moment, you're like, oh my God, this no, is the no the, turning back fulcrum yep. point in your, moment. in your life, right? But when it's happening, it's like, eh, you know, just one it's, drink. It's innocent. Yeah, it's harmless, right? And it's like, we've been in situations like that, I'm sure. Like, I've definitely been around people that are, like, apprehensive to have a drink. And I do, like, the dumb peer pressure yeah, thing where I'm like, yeah, time. just have one. Yeah. And you don't know what you're doing to a person when you do that. No, I love that thought that you don't know what's harmless and what's not. This way, how innocent it might feel. It, right. It might not necessarily be the case depending on the person. And the movie acknowledges that. It's like... Yeah, like he pushed her to do this, but she also had that in her to be able to get there. Right. Not a movie that pulls punches at all. Because I, I was expecting her to kind of like, like romantically save him. Mm. And I was so hoping the movie wouldn't do that. So when it didn't do that, yeah, man, it was just all the better for it. No, neither of them saves the other person. <laughs> and, and what an ending, too. Holy uh, shit, I mean, what an ending. And the studio, of course, wanted to change it because it was a big downer. And it's Jack Lemmon at the height of his powers or whatever. And You know those times where we watch movies and we're like, okay... End. end and right. they never do yeah and this was one of those moments i'm like end right. and it did i'm With like the shot oh, of the bar the neon so sign reflecting fucking in the mirror. perfect i loved it it's incredible shit yeah it's hard to overstate how radical this idea was in 1962 i was well. thinking the same thing you know when you think about alcoholism in movies there are several examples from old hollywood right like you have uh, james mason in a star is born or you have like ingrid bergman in notorious you know like Alcoholism was a thing that was acknowledged on the big screen, but very rarely was it the lead of the movie experiencing the symptoms of it. Yep. And very rarely was it focused on the interiority or the psychology of the person that was infected by it because it was not really thought of as a disease. It was more thought of as like a character quirk. There's a tremendous amount of this movie just devoted to what the alcohol does to a person on a deeper personal psychological level, on a social level, right. and how much of it is just focused on like the AA of it all. That's something I really didn't expect, especially yeah. for a movie as old as this is. Right. I can see people watching this movie now and thinking it feels a little bit like a PSA. Yes. But you do have to keep it in context. Like, dude, at the time, this is unlike anything you've ever seen. No, AA was considered this weird culty thing. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, it, yeah. like alcoholism was not thought of as a disease of the mm -hmm. mind. You know, it was thought of as a character flaw, right? And yeah. 
it was the person, not the alcoholism. Like alcoholism was not thought of as its own entity that could be defeated on its own. The alcoholism and the person were hand in hand, right? And that's what I think of, of of old movies like this. I think of those examples. The other big one is Billy Wilder's The Lost Weekend, which won Best Picture. And that was another like groundbreaking in the head of an alcoholic during a binge. The frankness that they have some of these conversations about like codependency and addictive personality. The chocolate detail is not something you would have seen in 1962 prior to this movie. Yep. It's that two people are fueling each other's addiction. And this idea that like this moment of love between them and intimacy between them oh, has God. the potential to create this virus essentially of the mind. Yeah, it makes a comparison like towards the end of the movie where she is completely gone and he goes to visit her in the motel. How that scene fundamentally isn't that much different to what they're doing at the beginning of the movie with the roaches. Right. But you also completely understand why he takes the drink ultimately. Yes. <laughs> you know. No, totally. It's yeah. That, yeah, it's that abusive tug and pull. It's like, well, if I take the drink, maybe it saves her, you know. Yeah. And I have to I have to lose a little more of myself to maybe maybe save her. And the movie doesn't give you the easy out no. of he saves her or she saves him. You know, these people have to help themselves. Yep. You know? My problem with like a lot of movies of this era that brush off the ideal of alcoholism is that it treats the alcoholics just like the bad guy. They're usually the person causing all the problems with Yeah, the it's like the village drunk, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's yeah. like, and this movie has the audacity to just say like, no, that guy needs help. Yeah, <laughs> So right. let's, let's look at his story and see where he got and see if he is redeemable. And th- they are. The movie acknowledges like, no, these people are, are, you know. They are worthy of saving. They are worthy of saving, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. And sometimes they get saved and sometimes they don't. Too. It's a horrible road. That's the point that the movie makes. So it's important not to forget about them. Right. I, yeah. I love the it. drunk tank scene. Like, oh my God, dude. <laughs> this movie. I mean, I have a, a ton of alcoholics in my family. So this was very like specific and personal and I understood it pretty closely. So it was just like, right. Yikes. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and as we mentioned before, too, like, the drama is buried in the traditional romantic comedy. Like you, it's still Jack Lemon. Yeah. The first half hour of this movie is really fun. Oh, like, I, agree, I agree. When he's like going on the yacht and bringing all the girls around. Apparently in those days, like if you were the head of PR for a company, you just like got dames for your boss. <laughs> okay. I didn't know that, but I guess that's what his job. He keeps saying I'm in public relations. It's and all like, he does is just get babes. Yeah. That's you it. don't say, man. <laughs> Um, yeah, no, so he's in the bar and he's like, yeah, I heard that you're a fun gal, you know, you like to have a good time. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> that shit's so great. And it's so innocent and charming and harmless. you know, it feels so harmless. Mm-hmm. This is going to be another running theme of today's pod, by the way, like the dark center at the heart of these like pretty charming movies at first. Yep. Even the next movie we talk about, if you look for it, it's not a cynical movie, but like it has something to comment on, like the nature of the culture in the city and stuff like that. So th- there's a darkness to most all these movies to a degree. Playtime, 1967, written, directed, and starring Jacques Tati. The number 23 movie of all time on the most recent sight and sound poll. 
Ms. Yorohulo curiously wanders around a high-tech Paris, paralleling a trip with a group of American tourists. Meanwhile, a nightclub restaurant prepares its opening night, but it's still under construction. Sort of what the movie was that. that yeah. No. <laughs> was that a complete waste of 10 seconds? Yes. It's like you could just say Jacques Tati's playtime. Right. And that's it. <laughs> yeah. It's time for play. There are plenty of movies that I will say I've never seen anything like it. And that does hold true. But there are other movies where that feeling is much more palpable. And holy shit, I've never seen anything like playtime. And I will absolutely certainly never see anything like it again. It's one of those movies where it's like, why would you make that? And also, like, I'm so happy you did. And a joy to behold because, like, the way I watched it is not the same as the way you watched it, I'm sure, Nico, just because of the very nature of the movie at times. Yeah. No, I watched it and immediately I felt the urge to watch it again because yeah, I just assumed yeah, you, that I had you, missed so much You of missed it. a bunch of details, right? <laughs> there was a critic, and I'm forgetting what his name is, but he essentially said, like, not only do you have to watch the movie several times to understand different things about it but like you have to sit in different areas of the theater and your experience might be different based on what vantage point you're watching it from like i watched it on a tv and i had a pretty like solid grasp of everything happening on the frame at any given moment but like if it was taking up my entire line of sight then yeah of course i would have missed several gags because i missed a bunch of gags on the small ass tv i was watching it on yep i watched the movie and then i watched it on criterion channel and there were several video essays breaking down all of the gags oh my god and i put them on and i started watching them and i'm like I didn't notice any of this. Yep. Like the centerpiece of the essay was hiding in plain sight for me. Mm -hmm. There's the one gag at the end with the restaurant after Hulot breaks the glass window and the door gag, which we'll talk about in a bit. Did you notice that the sound of the music inside the club fades up when the door is open? Oh, it does. And fades down when the door is closed? Uh, no <laughs> like these are little tiny details in there that's like a magic trick though because you, because you yeah. just associate it as a door even though there is no door there right <laughs> then later on so the guy sweeps up the glass and the glass is later used as ice for the champagne i did not realize that one of the guys holds the ice up to his head realizes that it doesn't feel cold assumes that he's sick then in the next frame that we see him, he drinks medicine only for Hulot to walk up and drink it, thinking that it's a cocktail. Oh, 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 yeah. All of this stuff is happening right in front of my eyes, in plain sight. It is the focus of the scene. I did not get a sliver of it. Nope. But there were a hundred other things happening in the scene at the time that made me like burst out into like audible laughter. Yep, me too. I think uh, it's been described as like a Where's Waldo Basically, yeah. movie. And Hulo is sort of used in that way. Like there are false hulos in the frame, you know, guys wearing the same trench coat. Sometimes he just sort of stumbles onto the frame in the background. You Mm -hmm. don't even Mm -hmm. notice him, even though he's the main character of the movie played by Tati. You can just waste all of your time looking at other details in this thing. You could watch the movie a hundred times and you get into a different experience every time. Yep. Because you could have experiences where you just, you're bored by it. I could imagine. We're just like, What's the big deal? What's going on? I'm not noticing anything. It asks a lot of you this movie. It, yes, it's another one of those kind of like like Jean Dielman movies where it's like yeah. just strap in and trust us, please. Right. right. It's worth it, but you have to you have to buy in. Right. 
I, I certainly didn't notice everything, but it was very easy to find threads. Yes. You know, I think the movie does a pretty good job at like saying, look at this over here. And when it does, it's always rewarding. And I think that's the key here. It's like the complexity of some of this stuff is really boggles my mind. Well, it's not unmotivated, I think. No. I think that's the difference. Like sometimes you watch... I don't know, like a Mel Brooks movie from the 90s, right? And those are just joke machines. Those are joke delivery machines. And the direction is kind of neither here nor there. Not no. necessarily in something like Blazing Saddles, but you know, maybe in something like Spaceballs. This movie is not like that. This movie is directed, even though it expects you to direct your vision yeah, that's the f- <laughs> in the right direction, it is still a work of active direction. A lot of the time, the job of a director is to direct your eye. Right. Like the express purpose of a director, a filmmaker, is to say, look here. And this movie says, don't do that. <laughs> right. <laughs> look wherever you want. Yes. But the fact of the matter is that every ounce of this movie is just curated and directed and considered and planned in advance. One of the most insanely well choreographed movies of all time full stop maybe the the most choreographed and the most accomplished in its choreography yeah i can't even begin to wrap my head around how they planned half of this shit let alone the whole movie it's gonna be a running theme on today's pod but (laughs) tati spent 3.4 million dollars in 1967 dollars constructing the set for this movie yep he built a city completely from scratch this is not like a real street corner in France. This is on a soundstage. And he financed it all himself. Insane man. Went bankrupt doing it. <laughs> Spent the rest of his life trying to dig himself out of that hole. I'm not sure he ever did. Like, I honestly, I thought of Synecdoche, New York when I was watching this. Like, it's not, has the, the movie itself has nothing to do with Synecdoche, New York, no, but, but like the making of this movie, it's like you're Philip Seymour Hoffman's character. It's, it's like if Philip Seymour Hoffman's character actually was able to accomplish what he, accompl- what he yeah, wanted to yeah, accomplish. Yeah, 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 yeah. Basically, yeah. is what this movie is. Totally. <laughs> now, I will say, you made a point before about the bleakness at the heart of this movie, if you look for it. Mm-hmm. So it's funny. This is a movie that's set in like the not so distant future. I I was sort of unclear about when this was supposed to take place, Um, but there are clearly a lot of like high tech gadgets that you see on screen. Silly though, you know, sure. It's, it's not like meant to be the most realistic depiction of the future. No, there's, you know, monochromatic colors. All of the buildings look the same. These people are sort of trapped in their glass cages or whatever, toiling away in the office. It is a kind of bleak look. I, I would imagine what Tati felt like Paris was, turning into and the sure. only indication you really get that it's Paris is the uh reflection of the Eiffel Tower at that like one time that's right and it's like oh god this is Paris what right Paris is somewhere in here it's, but yeah, like you can only see it if you look at it from the right angle and from a reflection no less right Just, it's a re- you know the, the literal idea of that even if it's on the nose it's like oh god it right. kind of makes you sick it's like come back Paris right and that's always how I've read the movie it's like yeah. the Paris lifestyle or, or whatever it is like that kind of culture that Tati loves finds its way back into focus by especially by the end of the movie Totally. And I see all of that and, you know, all of the consumerist stuff, too, with the trade show and how everything being sold at the show looks exactly the same. Mm -hmm. And these are gadgets with no real utility (laughs) to a modern person. And the way that, you know, like that flower shop on the street corner 
is kind of this novelty remnant of an older time. You know, this idea that, you know, we're obsessed with like ancient ruins or whatever. Like we keep the Colosseum in Rome intact, but we build a bunch of gift shops around it. And this is like a similar thing of like, this is one final remnant of Paris that people enjoy taking pictures of. You know, and that one American tourist is obsessed with taking a picture of it. So I get all of the bleakness in it. Here's what I will say. This movie does not presuppose the internet. And when I watch it now and I think about like the unbearable churn of modernity in 2023, I think of how isolated and lonely we feel now because of our relationship with the internet. And we all sort of, we work from home, we zoom meetings, we, we stay in our homes. I will say this movie is a very public movie in the sense that people are out doing things yeah. and moving in a physical space with each other and like bumping into each other. And there was something kind of refreshing about this dystopia. If you can even call it a dystopia, maybe I'm reading that just because it's 2023 now, maybe, but I think there is kind of a, a joy to this movie. Like the carousel traffic circle at the end of this thing. I don't know. I view that as like, man, how fucking cool that all of these people are together on this ride, you know, there is like a real joy and musicality to it. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, Am I being too highfalutin about this? I don't know. Who cares? Okay. Uh, I don't blame the movie for that. That's a hard thing to predict. It's okay. So I still think the idea is, is comes across though. Even if like from our experience, we're like, you know, this is a little more fun and exciting than I think the movie even thinks it is at times, but it's not like the thought doesn't make sense to me. No, I think it looks fun. (laughs) I guess that's what I mean. Like, you know, it's been 50 years since this movie and this is supposed to be a dystopia. And I'm not saying that Tati should have anticipated the internet. I'm not saying that at all. The movie's fun though. The movie is fun front to back. It's a jam. It's a jam. It's real. Like I want to explore this world. Like this world is not a dystopia to me. This looks like a pleasure. (laughs) Like that nightclub at the the end look like a blast well i think the the nightclub especially is supposed to look like a blast so that's what i mean by the movie like coming out of its shell i mean it's already out of its shell but like the get interesting thing about the gags is that they are so perfectly timed and rigid and everything happens exactly the way that it does it almost feels like that's a, a deliberate choice of the movie and everything in the ending is very well considered as well and it's all a big choice but it's like perfectly directed chaos and it feels more loose in a way even though there's a billion things happening all at once it does give a greater sense of like joy and fun and explosion ebert put this in his review where as more stuff started breaking and as more stuff went wrong in the nightclub everyone loosened up and had more fun and i i think that's part of like tati's thesis here is like this rigidity this perfectness the squareness of street corners the way that people walk in perfect 90 mm-hmm. degree angles it sucks the joy out of life and yep. you know the more that we yep. break this down the more fun it is right i get that <laughs> i'm just saying like i want to go to this trade show you want <laughs> it seems fun like I want to sit in one of those puffy chairs. Oh, it God. seems fun. <laughs> to me it was more funny. Yeah. I'm not sure I wanted to go there. I might want to, to have like examined it from afar and laughed at it. And I think the movie does a good job yeah. of giving you that opportunity too. Unless you're Nico, who's a weirdo. <laughs> <laughs> no, I just think like 
I don't know, like how sad and depressing is our modern times when like this is appealing to me. Yeah, fair. You yeah. know what I mean? Like this is this is a utopia. This is not a dystopia. <laughs> I, I'm probably the only person that feels this way. But I, I don't know. Like I just love. <laughs> I get what you mean. I, I just think like there's so much joy in being in these public spaces together. It's like when people book airline flights, like there's a whole scene about like the chaos of, of getting a flight. They still have to go to the counter to book the flight. Mm -hmm. Like they don't book it on their phones or whatever, you know, like there is a joy to this. Like this looks quaint in the year 2023. And yeah. I, it's not so much a dystopic view of the future. It's just like a parallel universe. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. In a, in a way, <laughs> in a way. Yeah. Yeah. Um, there are no punchlines. There's no like, yeah. Is there ever a punchline? Is there one joke in the movie with a punchline? I don't think so. These things kind of just happen. Yeah, it's not even like it's not even really like a setup per se. It just yeah, stuff is just kind of happens in front of you, and you're expected to react to it and deal with it, and then move on to the next one. Right. And the movie quickly reminds you it is just a series of really perfectly constructed gags. Yeah. But sometimes they're not even gags, though. Sometimes they're, like, little observations. Yes. You know, sometimes they're just, like, little rhythmic things. Like, the thing with the puffy chair. Mm. Like, I don't know how you come up with that, <laughs> other than stumbling upon a chair like that in life. Probably do. And yeah. thinking, there's something funny about putting my hand on the back of the chair and it's sinking into the leather. <laughs> you know, there, there's just something amusing about that. And Tati's able to find a rhythm in that. Mm -hmm. It's not really a joke per se in that there's like a setup and a punchline, but he identifies that there's something amusing about it. Yes, exactly. And so he's like, let me just try this. Let me just play around with this. It's so weird that like half the movie is like quaint, amusing observations, yet it feels epic. That is yes. such a weird contrast that is just undeniable here. Right. I love it. Well, the stakes are so small. There's, there's no stakes. There's no stakes to this. <laughs> like nothing bad can ever happen. Also, like the movie never punches down on anyone. You know, no, no, yeah, no one is ever the butt of the joke except for Hulo himself, who is again not even really the lead in this. Like, this is the point in Tati's career where he's kind of phasing Hulo out. Yeah, he kind of comes in, he trips, he falls, he hits his head on something, and then walks off the frame. You know, maybe an audience avatar, I guess, like just the guy that it's the only in, I guess, you have to the movie. Yeah, and sometimes you lose track of him, sometimes you don't. Hulo, by the way, we should mention is kind of like Tati's version of the Tramp. Yes, you know it's his like silent film star. Even though his movies aren't silent films, it, they feel like them in many ways. No dialogue here matters. Yeah, you could watch a silent. Well, the dialogue is actually turned down. Like you can barely yeah. hear the dialogue. Exactly. Sometimes. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. 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 So he's you know kind of the butt of a joke, but. I mean, this is kind of like the least mean comedy of all time. Maybe, yeah. You know, and I'm not one of those like, you know, cancel culture people where I'm like, you must not punch down or you must not offend anyone or you must not make a joke at anyone's expense. Like, I think like sometimes you have to and like the question is always, is it funny or is it not funny? But there is something really like admirable and refreshing about this one where Tati is just like, I'm going to make a movie that is brilliantly funny without making fun of anyone or really anything. You know, yeah. I'm just going to tap into like this weird nerve that's going to strike a chord with the audience. Yeah, that's why it's kind of genius because it's like, why is it funny? Well, it just kind of is funny. Yeah. <laughs> why are these little subtle gags or moments and amusing observations funny? 
I don't know. He just knows that they are. Yeah. <laughs> a door that when it's slammed doesn't make a sound. Why is that funny? I don't know. Because here's the thing. When we talk about this a lot with comedies born out of surprise, but it's very rare that a movie delivers more jokes the more you watch it mm-hmm. just consistently and gets funnier in that way the more you watch it. Yeah. It's not fair to even say like, oh, you'll never see a movie like this again. Well, no shit. Right. It's just like... It- it's like, this is actually one of the things Spielberg was saying when he made the terminal he was like i'm making my version of playtime in this airport and it's like first of all spielberg you're not capable of that Um, (laughs) listen i like the terminal but it ain't fucking playtime it's like that's that's as close as we can get to playtime in this day and age like that movie has nothing in common with playtime the only thing that reminds me of playtime in any sense is i guess the Tom Hanks' character physically kind of reminds me of the Tati character. Right. That's about it, though. Yeah. I love Hulo. I love... I know, like, Tati doesn't really like him because he was, like, sick of him by the time he made this movie. But, like, you don't learn anything about him, yet I feel like I know the guy. Yeah. I feel like I've had an experience with him by the end so of... he's so average. Exactly. He looks so fucking average. <laughs> it's, it's an underdog in that way. Yeah, yeah he is. Yeah. Like, there's nothing, like physically compelling about his look no yeah he looks like inspector gadget he's just yeah. running around there not doing anything and he's got one trick really he just falls yeah just falls and, and runs with his arms out you know? yeah, it, <laughs> it's like he's always like he doesn't walk he falls forward yes he does he falls and catches himself all the time he's just constantly stumbling in one direction yeah basically basically <laughs> and where wherever he goes is where the movie ends up that's it yeah or sometimes, like, he'll go in an apartment building and <laughs> that is won't the hear most, it. Like, why are we here now? It's so great. Like, the movie doesn't tell you. We're just there. Yeah. It goes into a wide. Hulo, like, runs into an old war buddy. He invites him over and they go and watch TV. And then we zoom out to a giant building, apartment building with four giant glass windows where we see the entirety of four different apartments yes and they're all in conversation with one another even though they don't know what's going on in the other apartment so it'll look like a person in one apartment is watching and reacting to a person in the other apartment Mm -hmm. how you choreograph that i don't know i have no idea it's oh god it's too good it's too good it's just too good don't you wish your mother was alive of course I wish my mother was alive. I think that's the reason we're such good friends. Because we remember each other from when we were kids. Things that happened when we were kids that no one else knows about but us. It's in our heads. That's how we know they really happened. What are you talking about? I know what really happened when I was a kid. Yeah, but no one else does. I mean, everyone we knew when we were kids is dead. So what? I still remember what happened. And I tell Annie about a lot of things that happened to me when I was a kid. And she enjoys listening to that. Well, you don't know what I mean. Oh, of course not, because I'm stupid. Oh, I, I wish... I wish my mother was alive. I wish your mother was alive. And I wish your father was alive. And I wish your... <sighs> my father was alive. And I wish your brother Izzy was alive. 1976's Mikey and Nikki, written and directed by Elaine May, starring our boy Peter Falk, John Cassavetes, Ned Beatty. Ned Beatty. As the hitman. The squealer himself, Ned Beatty. (laughs) That's right. Nikki is on the run from the mob, and he turns to his old pal Mikey for help. 
It's the plot of the movie. And that's all it is. And it's just about these guys, these buds. Just dudes being dudes. Dudes being dudes. They hate each other, but they love each other. That's right. No plot, really. No. Just a one-night movie. I love a one-night movie. Yes. Kind of an anxiety movie as well. New York movie. Oh, yeah. Elaine May. Uh, I watched this movie recently. I watched all of Elaine May's movies recently. Uh I love her as a filmmaker. I like all four of her movies, some more than others. I include Ishtar among the four. This is my favorite. I think it's a fucking bona fide masterpiece. (laughs) She shot 1.4 million feet of film for this movie. Oh, my God. It's three times the amount of film that was shot for Gone with the Wind. She's insane. She's an insane woman. Average two-hour feature is just... 11,000 feet. She shot 1.4 million. Way over budget. Took way too long to film. Improvising lines. There's this great story on the set of the movie where one of the camera guys yelled cut after Cassavetes and Falk left the set. They literally walked off the set. Elaine May was pissed. She's like, why are you yelling cut on my set? He goes, the actors aren't here anymore. They left. And Elaine May responds with, what if they come back? So just a chaotic exercise in pure creativity and vibe and improvisation with, you know, two of the great New York improvisers ever, Peter Falk and John Cassavetes, who are great friends in real life, of course. Yes. Kind of Elaine May's version of a John Cassavetes movie, although. If it's, if it's. You know, her take on it. I'm not surprised that the industry basically fired her. (laughs) She couldn't make a movie for another 10 years. Comes out, makes Ishtar. We all know the story here, right? Yep. But I don't know if I've ever seen a better friendship movie ever. Yeah, it's great. It is it's great. astounding. Weirdly, here's the thing. One of the sloppiest movies I've ever seen. Yeah. Like half of the shots are out of focus. Yeah. I don't know where the conversations are going. The direction of the movie is actually clearly in there, too. It's interesting. Like, Despite all the, the improvisation, they do a great job of working in like the suspicions and the paranoias and what's actually going on in a really tense way. But like, there's also like like five different shots where you see a boom mic clearly in view. <laughs> I'm just like, oh my god! You have 1.4 million feet of film, and you use that, that take. It's like, what yeah. the fuck are you doing? What the hell? Like, I see the arm and the whole boom mic and the side of the frame. Like, what what is going on here? And it's just like, this is ridiculous. But I'm amazed, like, how fucking awesome this relationship is. And just like the powerhouse of these performances, particularly, I mean, I love Peter. Peter Falk's incredible in the movie. Incredible in this. But man, Cassavetes is fucking good. And like, wow, one of the best performances I've ever seen. Yeah. Good. Yeah. Holy shit, is yeah. this great. Like, I don't look at this as like a movie as like film school per se. It's just like. No, you can't you replicate can't, this no, in film school. No, no college no, would ever let you do no, this. No, no, yeah. no, no. But just as a display of like beautiful characters and beautiful performances and just the awesome dance really great actors have with one another when they're put in a room together. And that know each other too. Like no, you, yes. can, you can feel their experience. And this, like, this movie yeah. would have been a piece of shit if it wasn't these two guys. Yes. It, it so completely hinges on them, but like they are ma- actively making the film better as they go. Yes. And you can tell like it's a collaboration with those two guys and Elaine May. Right. It's just... It's magic. Yeah. It is a ma- it's, an, yes. it's, it's alchemy. Magic. It's magic. It's magic. one in a million. Yes. Like, yeah. If one little piece is off, the whole house of cards comes tumbling down. Like like the 
cemetery scene. Like you can't see anything. It's just dark. It's like their faces are like never lit. I don't know why it's staged the way that it is. You're just like, oh, we're here now? Wait, where are we? Geography doesn't make any sense. But I'm just endlessly compelled by these two guys riffing on each other and like digging out more juicy stuff. And we get to know a little bit more about them the more they go at each other. I just love it. Despite like the technical problems, I don't care. Usually I'm all on that shit. Feature not a bug for me, to be honest with you. I don't give a shit. Yeah, Feature not a bug. Yeah. Let's talk about that cemetery scene for a second. Mm-hmm. It destroyed me the first time that I watched it. They say, like, you, you can pick your friends, you can pick your nose, can't pick your friend's nose, right? Like, well, that statement is inaccurate because, like, you can choose some friends. <laughs> but, like, there are some friends that you can't choose. And you maybe have one or two of those people. Two at the most, it's usually just one, though. Yeah, And we all have the friend like that that's just like, I have known you as long as I have been alive. You know everything about me. I know everything about you. I have like maybe two of those people in my life. Yeah, this is a friend that's like almost closer than a brother. Yeah. I, especially if you're a guy, you have friends like this. Yeah, yeah. Especially. Yeah. Like there's a special intimacy that like you knew each other as boys and they just see through the facade now. Yeah. You know, and it's very rare to have friends like that. that can just like pierce like right through your skin and see everything about you. Yeah. I mean, is this, this is a movie about a male relationship, yeah. you know, that's a platonic relationship, of course. Yeah. You can maybe even call it a male breakup movie in a sense. Certainly. The worst kind of breakup, <laughs> but, yeah. but, uh, yeah, boy, does it work. A definitive breakup. Yeah. yeah. Definitely. But there's that scene in the cemetery where they go, you know, I knew your mother and you knew my mother. We knew each other's families. You know, we go that far back and Mm -hmm. there's something about the fact that we knew each other's families. And like, it's not a perfect friendship. I mean, it's not a friendship that Peter Falk would choose again. You know, no, no. Mikey would not choose this again, would not hitch his horse to this wagon again because of all of the ways that Nikki has changed over the years and what a rabid dog he is that needs to be put out of his misery. But like this relationship matters more than anything that he'll ever do in his life. Yep. And that's the great thing about, like, it's a mob movie, but, like, these are petty mobsters. Oh, like, my God, yeah. These are the low most. man on the totem pole. You know, Mikey is just, I'll do the fucking job so my boss will like me. And Nikki is just, like, you know, he'll he'll rob from bookies and get himself killed. Like, these are low-level guys, not serious people. Yep, yep. I mean, even the hitman doesn't always seem to know what he's doing. Yeah, totally. Yeah. That juxtaposed with, their relationship and their work looks so small in mm. relation to their relate in. Yes. In relation to their relationship. That's a grammatically <laughs> correct sentence. <laughs> you know, that's the tragedy of this movie. None of this matters. And if someone made different choices along the way, maybe this could have ended differently, but like there's only a handful of relationships in your life that truly fucking matter. Yeah. Yeah. If you're like me, you saw those bits of your life in this movie. Oh, sure. Absolutely. With certain friends. Yeah, no doubt. No doubt at all. This is maybe the most important relationship in this guy's life. Certainly feels more significant than like Peter Falk and his wife. I mean that. Not even close. And that's at the end where he goes, do you notice that I repeat my words a lot? Remember, she didn't notice that. I didn't notice a thing. I love Nikki noticed that. It's one of those moments where I'm like, God, what is the deal with these guys? And then you get to that scene and you understand why he has hitched his wagon to this guy because he's kind of the only one that really understands him. Yeah. But what a sad thought that this guy is the only one that understands me. Holy right. shit, yeah. Yeah, but also, like, he's a poison in my life. Oh, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Like, but- I need to sever this limb. I have to. Yeah. Like, you know, I uh, listened to uh, the Video Archives podcast that Tarantino and Roger Avery do, and they did this movie. Okay. 
It's a really fun podcast just because like Tarantino's a podcaster, you know? I just now he's find, a, I just find that amusing. <laughs> he's given up he's given up everything and he's doing his fucking podcast. The difference between that podcast and our podcast though is that like when they have a question about what do you think Elaine May meant in that scene, we sit here and we speculate. Tarantino can just call Elaine May. Oh God. <laughs> he just calls her up. So he just calls her up and asks her questions and then comes to the pod being like, so I called Elaine May last night. Oh my God. And she told me this story about like Chicago mobsters <laughs> that were brothers and that inspired the movie. Well, that's the only thing. Other than that, it's basically the same dynamic as this one. I got it. Yeah. <laughs> Wonderful. It's not much. Different. That's cheating though. I don't like that. Yeah. But um, Tarantino was like in the first half of the movie, when we find out that Mikey turned on Nikki and fingered him and was going to get him killed, you hate Mikey. You're on Nikki's side completely. And then by the end of it, when you see what he does to the girl in the apartment and that humiliating love scene where Mikey's in the kitchen. Oh, it's the grossest thing. You kind of get it. You get where Mikey's coming from and you get the resentment. Like you understand, like you make jokes behind my back and you laugh at the boss, you know, with the bosses about me. It's, it's this idea that this has been going on for years and years and you know it just in one scene that this has never ended too. Hmm. Yeah, he's absolutely right. By the end of it, it's like, I don't want to do it, but I have to put this guy out of his misery right. for everybody. And it's not just me. Yes. He's, he's, he's this kind of guy that has made everyone's life worse somehow. He's a menace. Yeah. Yes. He just destroys everything in his path. It's a great movie. Nikki, you're making me forget the Kaddish. Mm. <laughs> Bangers, uh, man. One after the other. Man, that fucking ending, too. That's a tough one. And again, knows exactly when to stop. In like a suburban town, too. That's, that's the, the yeah. Thing. I thought the same thing. It kind of reminded me of um, the ending of um, Sugarland Express in that way. Yeah, but that this happens in like a nice neighborhood. And Very nicer, the, too, yeah. They're shoving the couches against the door and... It's just so, it becomes so primal and it's like not all like the comfort of that situation is just destroyed. You know, you know, the other thing kind of reminded me of was uh, when the parents are yelling at Matthew McConaughey to beat up the kid and kill her Joe. <laughs> it's like, just do it. Kill him, please. Yeah. I'm like, oh my God. Right. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. It's almost like, I don't want you to, but like just rip off the bandaid already. Yeah. Yeah. That's what it feels like. The whole movie, it's like you just assume he's going to bail his buddy out. Even when there, you know there is absolutely no hope whatsoever because you just believe this relationship so deeply. Yeah. Uh, heartbreaking. If only. If only he hadn't been so careless. If only the weight of the pig and the pump did not exceed the weight of the farmer. If only the farmer did not connect with the platform on the way up, or jam his fingers at the top. If only the pump hadn't fallen off at the bottom. And if only the poor farmer had the presence of mind to hold on to the rope. Go to another box office disaster. Now we're getting weird. <laughs> this was an Adam selection. Hell yeah. Babe Pig in the City. It's Fuck from yeah. 1998. Fuck yeah, we're here. <laughs> Written and directed by George Miller. Replacing Chris Noonan from the previous movie. Here's the thing. The first Babe is one of those like poltergeist scenarios where it's like Tuba Hooper directed that movie. Eh, but no, he didn't. 
George Miller produced the first one and actually co-wrote the script. Co-wrote right? the script and has said on multiple occasions, yeah, it was pretty heavily involved. He meddled. He meddled quite a bit. A lot. A lot yeah. of it. A lot of it. <laughs> it's, it to, the, to the extent that like Tom Noonan, or gee, I keep saying Tom. Yeah, it's, not, no, it's Chris not Tom Noonan. Noonan. Yeah. Chris Noonan has said like, yeah, like my relationship with that film is kind of strained because of, you know, yes. George Miller kind of inserting himself. Right. And then also just, completely shanking me in the second one too. Like the first movie got him nominated for an Oscar. You got a yes. best director. Now that movie got five Oscar nominations. Yeah, I know, know, right? James Cromwell was nominated in that first I movie. I love that James Cromwell was nominated. That is a great, I love the choice. It's fucking awesome. So like, you know, a huge movie. I'm sorry. No, I read that wrong. Seven Oscar nominations for the first movie, $250 million worldwide gross. Babe is a big deal. <laughs> huge fucking hit. And if I'm noon and I'm thinking, well, this is a layup. You got to ask me back for the second one. And I think maybe Miller felt a little bit of resentment about like, oh, he's taking all the credit for this movie that clearly is my vision. Yeah. I'm going to come in and show the kid how it's done. <laughs> and you can kind of feel that in this movie where Miller's like, I'm going to do a Mad Max movie with fucking farm animals. <laughs> yep. But anyway, yeah, George Miller back for this one. Uh, starring Magda Suzbanski, Elizabeth Daly, replacing Christine Cavanaugh. Rugrats, baby. Now, this is the voice of Chucky in this one, right? No, Chucky is the first one. This is, this is Tommy. Tommy, yeah. Uh, Mickey Rooney as a character named Fugly Flume. Hell yeah. Stephen Wright also in this <laughs> as chimpanzee. Yep. And James Cromwell back for a little bit. Love Tiny it. little cameo at the beginning and end of the movie, basically. Yeah. Uh, this was only nominated for one Oscar as opposed to the seven before Randy Newman got a nomination for the song that'll do really didn't get any more babe fresh from the victory in the sheep herding contest returns to farmer Hoggett's farm. But after farmer Hoggett is injured and unable to work, babe has to go to the big city to save the farm. Mm -hmm. It's a movie that's impossible to like summarize, particularly for children who oh are my God. allegedly the key demographic for this movie. It's a G-rated movie after all. I have no idea who this movie is for. <laughs> it's not for adults. It's also definitely not for kids. But at the same time, my God, am I happy that George Miller just said, I care about this children's fable and I also care about telling it exactly how I want to tell it. And... Let's just go for it, man. Let it, let's make a ridiculous fairy tale with farm animals. Is it even a fairy tale? Oh, like yeah. oh my God. I yeah. mean, every single one of his movies, that is kind of like the big carryovers. George Miller loves fairy tales in some wacky form or another. I mean, I've always viewed the Mad Max movies as, with the exception of maybe the first one, as sort of like fairy tales in the wasteland, particularly the latter two. Hmm. And this very, very, very much carries over with that. It's like, despite the fact that it is really fucking dark <laughs> and just absolutely out of its goddamn mind, there is a deep-rooted, like, fantastical quality to the setting and the characters and the situations that they get themselves in and just the pure hero's journey that this pig goes through ultimately i fucking love this movie blew my mind when i saw it now if you're to ask me which i prefer i mean it's kind of like picking children i like both for very different reasons i'll pick my favorite child oh, that's fair that's fair i get it i would volunteer for this sophie's choice immediately if I, you ask me to pick that's fine i understand it is just another one of those like sequels that's just like <laughs> You went this direction? <laughs> wow. Yeah, I don't even understand what direction they're going in. So, like, <laughs> yeah, I can't even be surprised, like, <laughs> it's a fucking masterpiece. This yeah, movie. Like, it's, it's an absolute bona fide masterpiece. 
that I would have I would have despised when I was a child, Adam. I would have hated it so much. I would have been terrified. I would have scurried out of the theater in tears. Yep. My parents would have uh, had to console me for a week after watching this. All of the peril that these characters are put in. These poor animals. Jeez Louise. How many near-death experiences happen in this movie? There's like one happening every like five minutes. Maybe even less. (laughs) Cromwell almost dies. Yeah. The fish almost dies after getting thrown out of the fishbowl. Can't breathe. The fucking dog. Two dogs almost die. Two dogs almost die. One... Uh, suspended in the town square, drowning. The other literally goes to heaven. Yes. Gets in a car crash, <laughs> goes to heaven, and ba- <laughs> babe brings him back. It's a bad car accident. We also talked about this. Like, that dog is fucked up. After he is <laughs> dead. Like, you felt that. <laughs> dead beyond repair. I rewatched it, and I jumped back when that dog got just, like, careened to the side the way that he does. Oh, my God. And he, his back legs don't work. By the way, a great car chase <laughs> in a <Bane> movie. <laughs> Yeah, there's... Okay, so we're jumping around here a bunch. The plot really doesn't matter. Um, But there's the scene where the animal control invades the hotel for dogs. Just a harrowing scene. There's like a pet hotel in the middle of the city that we should mention, by the way, is every city in the world all at once. It is not a city. It is the city. It is pig in the city. Yeah, the pig is in the country, and this is the all-encompassing city. So, like, when Babe looks out the window of the hotel, he sees the Eiffel Tower, he sees the Sydney Opera House, he sees the Golden Gate Bridge, he sees the Hollywood side. Empire State Building. All of all that. Statue think, of Liberty there, too. I think the World Trade Center is there, too. The original. It certainly is. Yeah. Yes. This was another, similar to Playtime, massive set that was constructed particularly for this movie. And an incredible set. Like, it's just, like, every little detail is just beautifully considered but it's on this like riverway that makes it look like venice Mm -hmm. but also the architecture looks nothing like you would see in italy you know it looks like it's out of a tim burton movie or something james cromwell's wife the farmer's wife takes babe to the city and they're stranded in the middle of the city and so they go to this hotel with this woman that houses all of these stray animals because she believes that animals are should be housed much like people should be. There's like a Holocaust element to it. Like, bring, yes. bring them in. I'll, I'll keep them safe for you. There is. And there's also like, you know, families of chimpanzees that I guess they just sort of live there. I guess they live there with their their circus master, yes. right? Yeah, that's the Mickey Rooney character. Fugly Flume. Fugly Flume. <laughs> there's a character named Thelonious Monkey. <laughs> Thelonious Monkey. Is in this movie. There's very few people in this movie, really. It's, it's mostly animals. It's all animals. And let me tell you something. Like, fuck you, Lion King. <laughs> the remake. Yeah, I know what you mean. <laughs> They're not performances. Let the animals talk. Let the pigs speak. <laughs> the moments they get for these animals to insert the dialogue. It's perfect. Yeah. It's amazing how good this is. It's amazing how like oddly convincing it is. It shouldn't work at all. But like I am deeply moved by every single one of these characters. Totally agree. What the hell? (laughs) But there's the animal control raid on the hotel. Yes. You've seen scenes like this in the past, never to the scale that Miller pulls it off Mm -hmm. in and not with the same sort of depth of character. But like we've seen animals in peril before in children's movies oh yeah pay attention to the music underneath that scene yeah. like i've heard animals in peril music or heroes in peril music 
That is not this. The music that they play underneath this scene is a fucking funeral dirge. It's tragic. It's like people you love are gone. It's dour and mellow, and it's not like this is an adventure where the good guys might prevail at the end. This is they have already lost. Yes, it, yes, yes, yes. It's taken the moment seriously. That is the yeah. tone of this entire movie. It is dire and bleak, and there's one line where it's like, you're just a pig in a big city. Why even try? What's the point? The movie is seriously contending with death yep. and existentialism and purpose. Yep. I'll read the line actually right now. There, there's the... The dog running after him? Something broke through the terror, flickerings, fragments of his short life, the random events that delivered him to this, his final moment of annihilation. As terror gave way to exhaustion, Babe turned to his attacker, his eyes filled with one simple question, why? <laughs> <laughs> Who wrote that? Werner Herzog? <laughs> Like, this is actually reckoning with death. Like, it is really fucking bleak, this movie. Yes. It's like, no shit, this movie didn't make any money. No, yeah. Like, no one going into this movie has- $69 million worldwide on a $90 million budget. Yes. Complete disaster. And also, no shit that no one liked it. I get it. I completely understand. Yeah. If you go into this movie with even, like, mild expectations that it might take this subject matter a little more seriously, no, this is a dark, unforgiving thing that is taking the story as seriously as you possibly can for a movie about talking fucking animals. Yeah. And that scene just broke me, man. Yeah. And and the way it comes to a solution breaks me. Yeah. Every time. It's one of the most powerful... What the pig says goes. Dude, where he saves the little bull terrier there, yeah. it's just the best, like, God, it's movies. It's like such a violent, almost death, too. Yeah, I know. It's like the way they, they shoot to the underwater scenes of the dog thrashing. Right. And then when the boat hits him... It's like kind of awkwardly knocking his head around. Yeah. And Babe's just like, give us a hand. <laughs> Please give us Adam's a hand. Adam's on the verge of tears. I might cry. This movie, <laughs> it's just the best. It is the, it's the best movie ever made. <laughs> <laughs> All of these movies are the best movies ever made. They sure are. <laughs> they really are. <laughs> they sure are. Only George Miller could have done this, uh-huh. <laughs> which is why it is one of my favorite movies that he's ever done. <laughs> Where does it rank for you? It's like number four for me. Number three. Okay. <laughs> it's, number three. Yeah. Ro- uh, Fury Road, Road Warrior, this. Yeah. Yeah. It's so fucking weird. Pig in the there, city. <laughs> there's, there's also like this running gag where like the humans in the city look like pigs. Humans that are sympathetic to babe because they themselves look like pigs. Yeah, it's like that turn of fate, that little like doses of like good fortune that you only find in like this kind of fairy tale world. Yeah, you know, you you see how like a traveler might come across these the bad people and then the good people. I mean, this movie is just so, in, a horrible idea from front to back, and it fucking knocks it out of the park. Mm-hmm. It just absolutely knocks it out of the park and gets everyone involved fired from Universal. <laughs> just gets everyone involved. Gone, canned, shit canned, you're done. Pack your bags, pal. And for the record, they talked about this movie in the Fury Road book because Fury Road was supposed to get made around the time that this movie was supposed to get... With Mel Gibson, right? Yep, yep, yeah. yep, yep. And everyone was just frustrated, like, like God, we want to do Fury Road, but we have to make this fucking pig movie? Mm. We, we kind of like the pig movie, but God damn it. <laughs> <laughs> we got to make Babe. <laughs> pig in the fucking city, dude. It is a horror movie. And it's a brilliant kids movie. That's right. It's a brilliant adult movie. It's a brilliant fantasy. It's everything. 
somehow everything happening in tandem and it shouldn't work at all. It should suck ass, but it's really good. (laughs) And I'm tired of people underrating this movie. One of these mornings. One of these mornings. It won't be very long. They will look for me. And I'll be gone. One of these mornings. Adam, are you a fiend for mojitos? Don't say all of them. I have one. <laughs> what, you don't think I'm going to use one of the quotes at the end? Snort your Coke, Nico. I know a good place for mojitos. <laughs> Miami? No, Havana. <laughs> Let's get on my speedboat. <laughs> go fast boat. Call it the right the name. Fa- Why does the it go guy- fast boat, Adam? These, these guys, if a tank was put in front of them, they could drive that too. Why can they drive every conceivable <laughs> fucking vehicle? They're fucking Miami beat cops. It's ridiculous. <laughs> they, they, it's, what the hell are you doing? They're on the Miami police department. <laughs> They're not in SEAL Team 6. Oh my God. They can do like elaborate aerial maneuvers <laughs> with the planes on. On top of each other so they're not detected by radar. It's, it's wild. <laughs> this movie. Holy shit. Miami Vice. Okay. From 2006, it's written and directed by Michael Mann. Returning to the franchise that he executive produced back in the 80s on television. He's making a cinematic big screen Miami Vice movie in 2006. It stars a coked out Colin Farrell, <laughs> a difficult Jamie Foxx that left the set like five times mid-production, Gong Lee, Chinese actress that doesn't speak a lick of English, so she had to phonetically play a Cuban woman. No shit. With a Chinese accent. Wait, she played a Cuban woman? I thought she was just Chinese. I think sh- she's Cuban. What? <laughs> All of her family's in Cuba. What the hell? Remember, because he's like, they don't like my passport in Cuba. I literally just thought it was bad casting. No. <laughs> I think she has family and stuff. Like, that's where she's from. <laughs> she kind of has a, a slight Cuban thing. No, she's Chinese. <laughs> she loves mojitos. She knows the perfect spot for mojitos. What a movie. Naomi Harris, Siren Hines is in this. Justin Thoreau, my boy, Barry Shabaka Henley, who is fucking amazing. One of the great faces in all of cinema. That's true. As the chief, he's so good in this. Uh, yeah, based on the 1980s TV action drama, this update focuses on Vice Detectives Crockett and Tubbs mm-hmm. as their respective personal and professional lives become dangerously intertwined. Much like Babe, much like Playtime, much like Mikey and Nikki, box office disaster. Oh, $135 million yeah. budget only made $63 million domestic. Oh, no shit, by the way. <laughs> they gave him so much money to do whatever he wanted, and he fucking did it, and it, no one liked it. I assigned this movie to myself for today's pod. I had not seen it prior to this. I've seen most of Michael Mann's movies. He's one of my favorite filmmakers. This one I haven't gotten around to. Here's why. I know this movie is a cult classic. Mm -hmm. Everyone on fucking Letterboxd gives this thing a five-star review. People love this movie. 
in certain online circles. You got to be careful with movies like that. Sometimes, like, there's a bit of a mind virus. There's, like, this sort of collective Emperor's New Clothes thing that happens with cult movies. And I was kind of worried that I would watch it and not like it as much as everyone else did and feel sort of pressured to praise it. You know, the movie definitely has an online reputation like no other. What it is is the most vibe, vibe piece of all vibe piece movies ever made in the history of vibe. I How don't many even... words did you understand when they were being muttered underneath people's breaths? There were words in the movie? <laughs> people, people were speaking English? Dude, they could have been speaking Mandarin with no subtitles. Would have made no difference to me. <laughs> Absolutely not. <laughs> at all. I don't know what happened in this movie. <laughs> And I will never know what happened. There's something about a white supremacist gang who is a part of a sting operation. Is more concerned with making the audience feel cool than knowing why they should feel cool. It's just cool. Be cool and go with it. And you're either going to go with it and you're going to be on the character's wavelength and it will be the best movie you've ever seen. It is. Adam, listen, you know me. I'm not the most sophisticated cinematic mind. Yes. <laughs> I'm a man of simple pleasures. I get it. I, my it's friend, fine, it's fine, it's all right? I, like, that's just who I am. I got to be me. I just sat through this movie, and you can look at my notes. I, I take notes now for the podcast. Line after line, this fucking rips. This rips. I was Fuck literally yeah. saying it out loud to myself. Fuck yeah. Just like Fuck yeah. that scene where man <laughs> shoots the inside of a car, and oh, you see the bullets so fly through the good. back of the seat. Through the guy's body. And then the head explodes. I'm just it's like, just this a- fucking rips. Yeah. I mean, that's the, when the guy gets hit on the freeway and you see the streak of blood underneath the truck, you don't actually see the guy get hit by the truck. In fact, they like cut away at a very specific moment. So you're not sure exactly what, what happens. Yeah. This fucking rips. When Colin Farrell says, I'm a fiend for mojitos. And she goes, I know just the place. And they get on the go fast boat. And that Moby track i think is it patty lapone that does the vocal on that and i'm just like listen we're having a somewhat expositional character scene while they're driving like a hundred miles an hour yes. with the top down on this right. the nicest speedboat you've ever seen with the most gorgeous horizon that they're driving into you're high while watching this movie it would never get made today. I'm surprised it got made in 2006. Considering no. this is like a piece of IP that is being resuscitated. Yes. <laughs> you know, like Miami Vice was a very popular television show. And Don Johnson has a very iconic role in that television show that like a coked out Colin Farrell has no right just stepping into and fucking doing his own thing with it. Also blatantly obvious that he's coked out. Even if you've never seen a coked out actor before, it's unmistakable. This guy's on something. Adam, this is an incredible performance. (laughs) It is an unbelievable. (laughs) We all know the story here, right? Like the guy does not remember anything about this movie. He was on so many drugs, whether it was painkillers or cocaine or uh, alcohol. I don't know what. But whatever cocktail was concocted before he got onto the set of this movie, he does not remember anything about it. You ask him in interviews now, what was it like filming Miami Vice? And Michael Mann, no fucking clue, bro. Don't remember anything about the movie. Walks off the set of the movie into rehab. Goes straight from the set of the movie, drives to rehab. Is like, 
yo, I am going to die if I don't change anything very soon. Holy shit. You see all of that in the performance. He looks like he stinks, like he hasn't fucking showered in a month because he probably hasn't. Is it a performance? I guess it's not at that rate. Maybe not. (laughs) But I will say this. This is a movie about losing yourself in your work, losing yourself in a false identity, uh, about the blurring lines between reality and, and this imaginary world you've, <laughs> you've constructed for yourself and how you don't know where to fucking draw the line. And that works perfectly as a metaphor for addiction. And this <laughs> slots right in. This performance fits right into what Michael Mann is going for here. I'm not saying that he should have been high during this and he couldn't have given a great performance without the heavy drug use, but... Luck, we know Colin Farrell came out the other side an all right, swell dude. And I say it was worth it, God damn it. I say it was worth it. This is a movie about addiction to you? Yes! Totally! <laughs> I, it, it totally tracks for me. It totally works. Obviously, it's not literally about addiction, but like... That's how you... Losing yourself in your job sure. is... Like, Crockett doesn't know where his love life intersects with his work life and where he his allegiances lie. Like... Yeah, I mean, it makes sense that he's coked out during this. Yes, I, I, in, in a sense. Listen to me. Yes. Listen to I'm me. I'm listening. It's a disaster. It's an unmitigated it's an mess. unmitigated disaster of a movie. Is it a good movie? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> but also, does it matter? Maybe not. Maybe not. If you want to get to know these characters, yeah, you're, you're in the wrong movie. I don't know who these people are. I had no idea who they are. I didn't know, remember what their names were. I don't know what their stake in this was. Again, I have expressed on many occasions that I hate the phrase style over substance. I don't often agree with it. This movie at a point was style over substance and then just transcends it. It just goes beyond, like the, okay. the style just becomes that to me. It's just vibe. It is just vibe the movie. And that's it. <laughs> I don't I don't know how else to describe it to people. Nothing matters. Like just nothing fucking matters in the movie except this just feels cool. And this is where my interest in the film ebbs and flows in a, a little bit. Because you might not vibe with it. <laughs> I get it. You might not. It might not be it. your jam. Sometimes it was not. Yeah. Like when I saw the movie, I'm like, wait, wait, wait. Was, is this an edit that where I missed the opening of the movie? Because you're just in it with no context. It's just like, movie happens. And I'm like... It, we should mention that. <laughs> opening scene is at a strip club. We cut to strippers on a pole, numb encores playing underneath the Linkin Park Jay-Z mashup from the mid-2000s. Here's the thing about fucking man too. Like <laughs> not afraid to just use the most on the nose music choices. Oh my god, yeah. From that era. I did not care for Lincoln Park growing up. I am not a Lincoln Park fan. I watch this scene now and I'm like, this fucking rips. <laughs> it rips. <laughs> it's so good. Nico Nico's two-word review. It rips! On RogerEbert.com. Four stars. It rips. It rips! <laughs> Period. No, like, I love how the dude just, like, <laughs> dove headfirst into adult alternative radio in the mid-2000s. Just shamelessly. Dude, he used his audio slave again. He used it in collateral in that scene where the, I know. where the coyote crosses the the freeway. I know. And he uses audio slave again in this. He doesn't. Just shamelessly. He doesn't care. And that thing, like, ages the day after it comes out you know like those drops like 
it's the same way that the show, the music from the show in the eighties is not really aged gracefully. Like you can watch it now and be like, this is an awesome vibe, but Miami vice will always be the TV show will always be stuck in the eighties because of the music video quality to it. Well, I think this movie is dated in its own way. Totally. Totally. But I love how fearless he is about that. Absolutely. Yeah. I I love how he's just like, this is the music that means something now. And I'm going to put viewers in a time and place. Sure. You know, and it might feel on the nose. And at the time I would have been like, uh, Really? We're using numb encore? Now I watch it and I'm like, fuck, man, 2006. What a time to be alive. <laughs> and it's so cool. You know, it weirdly feels of a piece because like. Oh, definitely. Absolutely. Know, it's not cinematic music per se. Like Audio Slave isn't like cinematic music. <laughs> but it is Michael Mann music. You know, it is Michael Manny in that way. Yeah, it's weirdly like sexy, cool, populist, but like yes. there, there is such a care for it. Like it's very obvious that it matters. I felt that way about Thief too, in a, mm-hmm. in a, in a lot of ways too. Right. You know, I, Thief is amazing. Thief is so good. I don't know why we haven't talked about it yet. We haven't talked about Thief yet? No. Thief is like- What? Again, also the best movie ever made. Oh God, fucking Michael Mann, dude. Listen, too. Uh, um, movie looks like garbage. It just looks. I, I could not disagree more. It looks like I, shit. I could, I could not disagree. Honestly, dude, like. It looks so dude, bad. The digital photography that he uses <laughs> yeah. here, the underexposed digital photography oh, yeah. that yeah. he started using in collateral oh, and yeah. then took it to its logical extreme here. Looks great in collateral, though. That's the thing. I love it in collateral. I think everything you're probably going to say about what it does to the setting, yes. what it does, does to the vibe, like the way it paints, yes. is perfect in that movie for me. Like in L.A., like you have never experienced before. Completely. I feel the same way about the Miami in this, though. Yeah. Like most of this takes place at night. You know, you're used to seeing like the, you know, Scarface version of a Miami. Oh, I, I agree. It's just like the pixels are breaking half the time. It's sick. <laughs> it is so blown out. It no, just it's looks- one of those movies I watch and I'm like, why did we not get a hundred movies like this afterwards? <laughs> like why? Why did this not do for cinematography like what fucking Gordon Willis did in The Godfather? This kind of digital photography, this underexposed digital photography yep. has never been done better in my opinion. Mm-hmm. Like man just his well man knocks is the- it out of the park. Yeah. And no one's ever even tried it because it doesn't look good. That's why. I think it looks incredible. It I looks think it's great like this and- awesome impressionistic fucking I, I like I've I've never seen a depth of field that long in a darkly lit Oh, crime movie. Before. No, I yes, I agree. But that's why I love Collateral so much. I just think he, he just pushes it really fucking he far. Does. Here. It's just like, <laughs> oh my god. Uh, here is the, the the if I'm to take anything negative away from it again, it's it is also this. Um, there's just a lot of. So you gonna do the thing, man? I don't know. You what are you? Fuck my partner. You want to do business? Part- you want to do business? All right, we'll make the drop. <laughs> You gonna make the drop, man? Where's the load? <laughs> Where, where's the load? Be there with the bow at this time. Who usually carries your load? <laughs> the entire movie is that. It's just these hyper intense masculine fuck yeah oh, scenes. He's so good at writing that shit, yeah. though, man. Yeah. He's so good at that. <laughs> don't know what they're talking. From, from the action is the juice to uh, life is short, time is luck. 
I don't know. The, I don't Life know. Life is short. Time is long, have, Adam. It's just like it's it's that same like counselor thing. Like, what the hell are you even <laughs> talking about? What is even being said? And most of the movie, like the whole second act, is just that until you get to like one of the most spectacular shootouts I've ever seen in my entire it's fucking a, life. Which was not actually supposed to be the climax of the movie. The only oh reason they God. used that is because Jamie Foxx left set early. Oh, he's God. like, I refuse to come shoot in. I think it was in. Panama? Oh, wow. I forget exactly where the climax was supposed to be, but he's like, yeah, I'm only shooting in the United States now because they ordered gangsters to be their security when they were shooting in Cuba. Oh. And a guy got shot. And Jamie Foxx is like, I just want an Oscar. I'm, I'm not going to be here. I'm off. I'm gone, dude. That's why he's like in so little of the movie, even yeah. though he's like ostensibly the second lead and he's top billed. Mm -hmm. Hurricane Katrina also hit around that time. Oh, no. So it was hitting the golf, so they had to like delay production because of that. That was not even supposed to be the climax of the movie, and they ended up with it, and it, it's immaculate. It's an amazing. amazing shootout. Yeah. Yes. To call it like a great action movie, I mean, there's only like two or three action the scenes. The trailer scene? There's a trailer scene. Yeah, that's, that's more of a suspense scene, you know, but I wouldn't tell people, oh, this fucking awesome action movie and they'd watch it and they'd have no idea what's going on and they'd be like, there was like two shootouts and I'm like, yeah. <laughs> so I wouldn't go that far but when the movie decides to pop, it fucking pops and it's, yeah, n nothing else quite like it. Some of the most realistic freaking shootouts I've ever seen. It works. Yeah, realistic but also like not at all. Yeah, know? no, yeah, like, yeah, 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 yeah. I agree. It's like <laughs> I've never seen bullets go through a body like that before. Oh my god. Yeah, like the last when he finally kills him. Yeah. The guy that's a great sequence. Well, it's like heat, the same thing. It's like when yeah. the, the way that he uses the actual blanks in the middle of downtown LA and the way that it echoes off of the he uses off the, the buildings. Yeah, like so much of the impact of a gun is just the sound that reverbs off a building. Yeah. Off the wall. Yeah, he's very, very smart about that. It is just a hell of a movie. Yeah, certainly an unforgettable movie. It's it's not perfect, Nico. <laughs> when will you understand me, Adam? But it's you know, great. when will you understand? Oh, I like, know. No, I, I understand you. It's fine. I like jargon. I like a plot that doesn't make sense. I like vibes. I like good music. I like fucking... Cinematography that I can't understand. You like you like I like coked out actors. You like your junk food. <laughs> it's beyond that. It's yeah, just you like, like your junk. <laughs> it's, it's I want indulgence. I want more of it. Yeah, it is one of the most indulgent movies I've ever seen. Undisciplined, but also very disciplined at the same time. It's weird. But it's like it's a movie that doesn't give a fuck. And uh cool. One quick note. Yeah. So I watched this movie. I was levitating, of course, afterwards. Mm. Following day, The Bear dropped on Hulu. The Bear Season 2. Yes. Excellent television show that you will watch one day. Mm -hmm. Once I'm done with Star Trek. Right. In 2026. That's right. First episode of Season 2, one of the characters on the show is calling the security company that uh, controls the alarm system at the restaurant and says to the guy over the phone, the password is go fast boat mojitos. <laughs> and I would not have understood the reference if I watched Miami Vice just a day later. Wow. So I'm very happy that a reference for Miami Vice, the failed 2006 film, made it into the first episode of The Bear. And that no one watching the show of the millions of people that are binging it now will understand what that reference means. hearing noises in the hallway. It hasn't reached me yet, but it's on its way. I feel like I can't do anything. 
I think Ellie saw a ghost. I didn't have any rational explanation for who was in those photos. Something was happening inside that house and I wanted to find out what it was. There was a ghost in the house. Lake Mungo from 2009 is the final movie on the list. Written and directed by Joel Anderson. His only movie. Hasn't been heard from since. Nope. Much like the girl in this film. Yep. <laughs> Just vanishes. Yep. Rosie Trainer, David Pledger, Martin Sharp, and Talia Zucker star. You don't recognize any of those names because none of them are major actors. No. Strange things start happening after a girl is found drowned in a lake. Tiny, tiny Australian horror movie. Yes. The kind of movie that I actually would have watched a lot when I was a teenager because there was like a big mockumentary boom in the late 2000s. Mm-hmm. Several years after the Blair Witch Project, of course. But like, you know, Borat was pretty big. I'm Still Here was coming out. Yes. Around yes, that time. Right. The paranormal activities were around the corner, more of a found footage thing. But you ever seen the movie Series 7, The Contenders? No. Tiny ass fucking movie. Stars the girl that's trapped in the well in Silence of the Lambs. Oh, weird. Okay. Years later, it's like a reality TV spoof where it's like the Hunger Games. It's with adults that have to hunt each other. Interesting. And again, it looks like it was shot on my camcorder that I owned when I was seven years old. And it's it's super, super indie. Interesting. Uh, But it's shot like cops, essentially. That's the quality of like photography in that one. And it's really funny. It's super fun and kind of gruesome, violent, and it's good. Cool. Uh, But I was like really into these movies at that time. This one escapes me because I was a pussy and I couldn't. Wow. tolerate ghosts and things like that. Yeah, you. I know that you were kind of skeptical, as you always do. Every time I try to recommend a horror movie, you try to find a way out of it, and it's really funny. To I me. do. Yeah, this thing would have terrified me then because obviously it terrified me now. But <laughs> how did you stumble upon Lake Mungo? What made you nominate this one? Oh, I had been... Uh, Red Letter Media made a mention of it, and I was like, oh, a cool little chilling mockumentary movie. I was a little skeptical because I don't like the paranormal... Like, movies really at all and found footage could go either way and i was this was billed to me as a found footage movie i'm like eh, all right i don't know it's kind of a found footage movie but, but. It's, eh, but it's not a found footage film it incorporates some found footage elements for the purposes of the mockumentary but that's really what it is because what did catch me off guard was the fact that the movie was going to be primarily focused around the tragedy of this family and what they thought about it and their talking heads interviews yeah, just re- really, really, really surprised by it and surprised by the care and humanity within this movie. Because so often these movies don't really have much of that. There's a cheapness to them. And despite how low budget this film is, it does not feel like a movie that doesn't care about its characters. Or It feels like a movie where it felt like the filmmaker really wanted to tell this story. And there, I imagine there's a little bit of the filmmaker in this It's not a gimmick, is what you're saying. No, 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 no. The documentary thing. Yeah. It felt like some personal demon that the filmmaker was dealing with, and the only way he could express himself was in this format. And I love it for that. The idea for the movie is scary. Just the story is just an upsetting, tragic, and scary idea. And then they just go the extra mile to present it in the most careful, subtle, little ways Mm -hmm. that I I rewatched it again, and it it is palpably frightening at times. I don't know if I would have been fooled by this if I didn't know that it was a mockumentary. I don't know. 
It's really convincing. Yeah, it's convincing. It's really, really convincing. Yes. If, if I was, let's see, how old was I in 2009? It was 14. Yeah, I mean, I might have been fooled by this at 14. Okay. I, I could definitely see it. The acting is impeccable in it. Uh-huh. They don't cheat the story. They stay within the gimmick. They stay within the logic of the gimmick. Because here's the thing about a movie like this, right? Like, not only do you have to think about how the story unfolds, but you also have to think about how the movie would be made. Yeah, it clearly has a deeper understanding of like the way other documentaries often work. Yeah, because like you have to consider not just what's on the screen, but also what's happening off the screen is a fabrication, right? You're lying not only about the stuff in the frame, but how that stuff was constructed. Yeah. Right? So you have to purposefully, like for example, use grainier footage than a scripted movie would choose to use which is i've said this in the past right i fucking hate well-shot documentaries yes it's a figure of speech there's plenty of like well-shot documentaries that are great but the point is like when it's just all set up and perfectly curated and they got these dolly shots yes no 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 it's like that's not the movie (laughs) yeah so like the the movie has to make up footage that they might not have access yeah yeah I think of like the scenes with the kid like practicing his photography in his studio. Right. You don't really need that, but it works. But that and that is B-roll that you would see in an actual documentary yes, as well. Precisely. I also think of all of the eerie shots of empty rooms. Mm-hmm. That is such like a trope of documentary filmmaking in the last 20 years of like <laughs> I'm telling a story about something that happens in a room, so let me just show the empty room. Yeah. And if I'm referring to the chair, I'm just going to show a shot of the chair. Yep. Like, it's really fucking impressive how the movie doesn't take any of those shortcuts, even though there are a lot of twists in it. It's and it that, is telling a narrative story, you know? That was a weird thing, because I had forgotten on rewatch the subplot involving the neighbors. Yes. Like, like I had totally forgotten about that, because I just kept thinking of, like, the mystery surrounding the daughter and the ending and all that, and the shots of her in the frame, and you don't quite see her. But I was like, oh, yeah, there is, like, a weird affair like threesome abusive yeah. thing going yeah. on and yeah, it's yeah, just yeah. bizarre and it's like oh yeah there is like a more complicated narrative running through this you know well you could have made a whole movie about that wasn't necessarily a mockumentary david lynch made a tv show about it actually oh yeah yeah that's right. i mean these characters I are literally that. called the palmers uh, their last names are the palmers on rewatch yeah i noticed that too I and it's like, about you know body of a dead girl washes up on shore and what kind of cracks does it expose in the family and in the community the domestic reality of the movie i hadn't seen twin peaks before oh uh, interesting yeah okay. so i saw this before twin peaks and then on rewatch i was like oh my god there's a lot of twin peaks in a lot this lot yeah. of twin peaks yeah. in this i don't think it's a coincidence that they were named the palmers no but yeah i mean it is more a movie about grief and about loss than it is about a ghost oh yeah yeah you know? absolutely and that's what that's what twin peaks is like it's it's the ultimate ghost story without really having ghosts on it mm-hmm. you know it's about like that void that's left behind when you lose someone that you love or whatever sometimes it's about moving on and accepting the fact that there's always a void which is right. a really disturbing idea because by the end of it it is a scary ending even still it's like oh yeah you don't really get the sense that anything was fully concluded and much like you watch a documentary and it's like the documentarian because, like, you can't shoot forever. Like, I got to end this thing somehow. Like, I have to end it on some note. And that's how this movie ends. Like, without any resolution, really. Where, yeah, this family has not really moved on. Like, this movie is about all of the fucked up ways they fill the void. Yep. And as those twists unfold, as you mentioned, the weird neighbor thing. I don't want to spoil too much of this because I doubt many people that are listening have seen this movie. But what the son does 
and what's revealed about all of the information we got in the first half hour of this the movie. It's a great idea. Like, it would be a pretty shocking twist in a conventionally told movie that's not a documentary. No, but it's much smarter than that. It's actually surprisingly well-written for what it is. It's well-written, but they don't fucking cheat it. Nope. You know what I mean? Nope. Because here's the thing. All the people that are featured in this movie already know the story being told. Mm-hmm. So there's no audience avatars in this. The, the things can be surprising to you, but not to the characters on screen, and they never cheat the logic of it. Yeah, yeah. They don't break any rules. Right. And even if the characters aren't breaking the, the rules, like I often find in movies like this, the filmmaker breaks the rules. Yeah. They get a little too cheeky with, okay, let's push the found footage or the mockumentary of yes. it all. And it's like, okay, now like that just would never happen in this story. That happens a lot in found footage movies specifically. Oh, yeah. Where it's just like this shot does not make any sense. Like from this point of view, oh, from yeah. the character that I thought I was with, this doesn't work at all. Yeah, Chronicle is like that. Oh my God, like- Chronicle sucks for that. <laughs> I don't even hate, I don't hate Chronicle, but that is a movie that has no business being found footage. Yeah, all. it's like we're going to stage so, a big action set piece and we're going to make a hundred smartphones fly. It's just like, no, that's not what found footage means, you dipshit. It's right, just like, yeah. God damn, I hate that. I hate that finale. Right. Uh, because here's the thing too, like documentaries a documentarian is trying to make a movie. Like they're trying to narrativize stuff. So like documentaries sometimes have twists and turns like you would see here, but they can't be so out of left field. The person telling the story needs to be telling one story throughout. So these talking heads interviews in the first half hour can't contradict the second act, can't contradict the third act. Nope. And they're all of one piece. Every time you ask, how did they get this footage? Why are they sharing it? They have an answer for every single shot in the movie. Yeah, it's most beautifully exemplified with the shot. Uh, it's in broad daylight where they go back to the scene where the daughter was killed and they get those perspectives of people just sitting there taking pictures of themselves. Right. And then they were able to track down these people that were also there just filming for fun. It's for no other reason. It's not like people are spying. It's just, we're just out in the woods having fun and, oh, look, there's a person in the background. Oh, you can clearly see it's the brother. And it, yeah. Perfect. Now, I will say, there were times where like they zoom in there's this shot like 20 times in the movie still on uh, video footage and we just slowly zoom into one section of it and they're like we could tell it it was i forget her name sophie was that the name of the daughter you're, you're talking about where they're they're looking at it and they can still clearly tell and you're like no way you'd be yeah, able to no, right yeah yeah yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. it's yeah. like it is really <laughs> like you can tell that like yeah there there is a lot of like born identity enhancing going on when they zoom in on some of this footage <laughs> um <laughs> jesus christ it's jason Bourne yeah. in lake mungo right <laughs> but it it still makes sense yeah. yeah you don't have to suspend disbelief at all no you know no also terrifying. Yes, I, that's this last point I really wanted to get to. It's very scary. But again, there is like hardly any boo. Gotcha. There's only one. Yeah. And it's a good one. I mean, yeah, it's a good one. Really good one. It's a really good oh, one. Oh, God. You're thinking about it freaks me out. Yeah. Um, it's all vibe. Yes. Yeah. Terrifying. It's all just creepy. Atmosphere. Yes. And you feel it when you shut the movie off. You'll turn around. You'll look in your room. And you'll start looking for figures. Yeah, well, because you start conditioning yourself yes. to look at the edges exactly. of the frame. It's great. Because, yeah, because I think I love like, it. <laughs> the one scene was in the seance. Yeah. Where it's like they're doing the seance and, I, and obviously I know, I can't see the ghost, but I know where the ghost would be because like the filmmakers construct the shot that way where there's that empty part of the corner of the room. It's just great when you do notice it before it decides to yeah, yeah, yeah. To, to zoom in. Yeah. And you're kind of like doubting. You're like, nah, nah. Yeah. And then the movie tells you, yes, huh? <laughs> it yeah. zooms in for you. I love it. I love it. I love it. It works basically every time for me. And here's the other thing too. Came out at the perfect time because iPhones would have fucking destroyed this movie. 
I fucking hate iPhones. Would have destroyed it. Yeah. I mean, it's it's actually one of the worst things to ever happen to cinema is iPhones. I would agree. FaceTiming and, you know, super clear home video footage and yeah, this would have destroyed it. I mean, like the cell phone footage in this is hilarious to think about now because it's so dated. The blurry oh, yeah. Nokia cell phone footage that they take in the desert. Like there wouldn't be enough limitations put on the documentary now. If it were being made now. Sure. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And one of the reasons why this movie is so great is because of the limitations, you know, and how yep. it has to be really creative about how it unfurls its story. It's great. Yeah. It's it. great. It's very good. You ever seen a ghost, Adam? Yeah. Uh, in my room. Yeah? Yeah. When? When I was uh, 13. And what was he doing? Uh, was, it, was he like a pirate or some shit? No, it was, it was like a like a bald guy oh like pacing back and forth and then they just kind of look at you and then they go away huh word dude and then you don't see him again <laughs> okay we got to put one of these in the movie hall of fame adam hall it's tough it's much tougher than i thought it was going to be yeah I mean, Mike, I guess my go-to is playtime. It doesn't mean as much to me as Babe Pig in the City, but uh-huh. there is a bit of me that would love to put in Babe Pig in the City. Mm. Just because, like, it's an, kind of an unsung hero of a movie, uh, whereas, like, playtime comes out, everybody knows it, everyone loves it, and it's kind of one of those things where it doesn't need us to tell it that it's great or it's above all those things. Babe Pig in the City is definitely a really good movie that deserves a little more championing. If you had to pick one of my movies, which one would you pick? God. Oh, man. Days of Wine and Roses. Fuck it. Really? Yeah, that's great. That would be your choice. That would be my last choice of my three. Holy shit. I'd be happy with that or or Mike and Nikki. Those are my two for you. And if you you wanted to go Mike and Nikki, that would be fine. Yeah, I think Mikey and Nikki is my... Favorite, yeah, I think I, so. I loved it. So I'm good with playtime too, though. Okay, that I mean, that's I don't know. That's the most important movie. I mean, it's like the yeah. best, most important canonical movie. You Easily know. the most impressive movie. On the it's list. also the one yeah, that yeah. like we were the one millionth person to say that about. And that's why I'm like, you know, I, I it sucks because you know what? It, Fuck it. Let's do Babe then. You want to do Babe? Let's do Babe. Is that unless a, you'll give me Miami Vice? No. But mojitos, though, bro. I know. I'll make you a mojito after this pot. I'm a fiend for him. I, I, I know. I know. What's in a mojito? Uh, is it rum? I think it is rum, and but I don't really know what the other elements are. You know what a mojito is? Should we get mojitos after this pod? Mojito? It's white rum, lime juice. White rum, lime juice. I do love my rum cocktails. They're good. They're good. Oh, you put you, you can put like a little mint in them, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. That's I've right. had them with the mint. Yeah, they're good. I've made some. We could put in Babe and Miami Vice if we're feeling indulgent. It's the indulgent pod. What do you say? I will meet you halfway and you know bite the bullet on this one. We can. Do put we it- have vetoes left? I don't know if you do. Do you have a veto left? I know you used your veto. I don't. That's the thing. And I don't. But we can extend each other an olive branch, and because these are very fucking, we, we can't put two in. No, we don't. We don't play that way. I most enjoyed listening to the Mickey and Nikki <laughs> because I felt like it was most relatable. And it is. And most meaning. And it is. Oh, I can identify with this conversation. Okay. Abby goes with Mikey and Nikki. Was I asking? <laughs> hey, hey. 
you all you were asking. Be nice to Abigail. Uh, I'm good with that too. I love these movies. Yeah, I think I they're great. Movies. I think they're all great. I don't know. You can make it. I mean, Lake Mungo is probably the the least, you know, important, least significant. It's a nice well, little not- curio. <laughs> You know, it's a movie that like a guy made and it's like, what happened to that guy? Where'd that movie come from? And And it's like, it was just left in front of a firehouse. The best movie on the list to me is Playtime. Uh My my personal favorite. That's fine. My personal favorite is Babe. So my personal favorite is is either Mikey or Nikki or Miami Vice. Wow. You say Mikey or Nikki, Abigail. Without saying it, yes. I abide by her decision. Wife's right. (laughs) Happy wife, happy life. Yeah. Mikey and Nikki. <laughs> it's a wonderful movie though. It's really great. Um No. I <laughs> probably it, not. It's kind of a guy movie. <laughs> it's just guys being dudes. Yeah, yeah. Directed by a woman though. So written and directed by a the woman. The only one directed by a woman. That there is true. Go. Not a lot of uh, female filmmakers in the movie. There you go, fame. Abby. So, hey, there we go. Feminism won today, Abigail. Yeah. On the movie <laughs> Hall of Fame. Congrats. At least we didn't induct Ishtar. <laughs> Ishtar fucking rocks, dude. Ishtar's so good. Yeah, it sure does. <laughs> All right, we'll be back. Two weeks. You know what's in two weeks, Ed? What's in two weeks? Two films hit the cineplexes across the country. I don't know what you're talking about. One is called Barbie. Another is called Oppenheimer. Hell yeah. So I think we'll discuss those on the next Movie Hall of Fame. With Nick? Sure. I think we need to have Nick on for that one. I think we do. And we love you. Ooh, I got my quote. Oh, okay. Don't uh, don't you forget, I got my quote. Until next time. Probability is like gravity. You cannot negotiate with gravity. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>